2: Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. So this is Stuff You Should Know. Yes. How are you doing, Chuck? (laughs) Do I look tired? You seem a little a little logy. Tired, man. What's going on with you? I've just been waking up like too early for no reason. Going to bed too late though? Because if you go to bed early and wake up early, you're fine.
2: Well, going to bed late sometimes, Mm -hmm. not getting enough sleep, then going trying to go to bed super early. Yeah. To make up for it. Uh, but I don't know about this making up for a sleep deficit. I don't buy all that.
1: I feel like we talked about it before that there's that 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 doesn't actually work. Yeah, I'm just tired. That's all I can say. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> it's all right. I'll I live.
2: But hey, we're about to fly to Denver, and that'll correct all those ills.
1: Yeah, that'll definitely um, make you catch up with your sleep. Yeah, immediately that they being in a different time zone two hours later, <laughs> for sure, right? But a quiet, cool hotel that that'll help. It will help, man. I'm glad it's going to be two good shows, Charles.
2: Two good shows and three because I am uh, I'm kicking one off the old bucket list venue
1: eyes and going to a show at Red Rocks on oh, Friday. Cool. Who are you going to see? The Avett Brothers. Oh wow, that's really something. Uh, don't they wear like pocket chains and stuff? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: No, I was uh, I was trying to just go to any Red Rock show, and if you look at the Red Rocks calendar, there's a lot of stuff on there that would not appeal to me at all. A lot of groove
1: jam, yeah, stuff.
2: And then this aligned with uh, Ava Brothers, and it's like, yeah, that's great. I'll take it.
1: That's great. Well, I'm glad it worked out for you, man.
2: Yeah, it will be good. I'm on row 70 of 70, so... <gasps> I'm on
1: row 70 as well. (laughs) Are you going? No. (laughs) I'm just teasing.
2: Yeah, I think uh, if I don't have a heart attack on the way up to row 70, it should be okay.
1: It's supposed to be a cool venue, I've always heard.
2: Yeah, I've been enamored of it since the Sunday Bloody Sunday video when I was a kid.
1: Oh, that's right. That was at Red Rocks, wasn't it? Absolutely. Nice. Well, here's to your bucket list, Charles.
2: (laughs) Thanks. And And I could die on row 70, and at least one thing will have been accomplished. <laughs> right. Yeah. You'll
1: have I your you have your bucket list with you and just the one scratched off.
2: I hate that term anyway.
1: Yeah, it's pretty pretty bad.
2: But I, just, I know that's what the people understand.
1: Uh you could call it your death list.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's even better. It's more like I've got some music venues I'd like to see and that's one of them.
1: Oh, okay. Some people do that with like baseball stadiums. They go to every baseball stadium yeah. before they die.
2: I try to go to as many of those as I can um, when I'm in different towns, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Best right.
2: one I've been to, you want to ask?
1: Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, what was the
2: best <laughs> one you've been to, man? Pittsburgh.
1: Oh, for three Rivers is that one?
2: <sighs> well, that was the old uh, name. I think it has a different name now.
1: Was that the time when we went and shot those Toyota commercials? that yeah. you went mm-, mm-hmm. and that was the best baseball stadium you've ever been to. it's gorgeous what what was so great about it?
2: It's just you know it's positioned right there on the river, mm-hmm. and if you have the right seat, you can look out over downtown and see like all those beautiful bridges mm-hmm. uh it's just lovely,
1: wow, okay, cool, yeah. I remember quite clearly I stayed in my room and gorged (laughs) myself on chicken sog. It was totally worth missing the the Pittsburgh baseball stadium. Yeah, I remember that. It was funny. I hurt myself on that stuff.
2: (laughs) All right. I'm glad we killed some time before we got into this very mysterious, sad story.
1: It's a good one, though, isn't it? It is extraordinarily sad. Probably the saddest true, I don't know. It's up there as far as true life, true crime disappearances go. Yeah. Um. And it's the one about Gary Mathias. Well, that's what they call it. They call it the Gary Mathias disappearance. But that really doesn't do it much justice, or it doesn't serve it well, because it was a lot more than Gary Mathias involved.
2: Yeah, I've seen it more so called the Yuba County Five. But oh, yeah? uh You know, I guess it just depends on where you're looking.
1: I had not run across that. Oh yeah. Oh God, that makes me wonder what all stuff I missed. <laughs> Well, you know there were five guys. What? <laughs> so, no, there actually were five guys. There were five friends. Um, Gary Mathias was one of them. And there were four others. There was uh, Ted Weir, mm-hmm. who was the oldest. He was 32. Correct. There was Jackie Hewitt. He was the youngest. He was 24. Mm-hmm. There was uh, Jack Madruga. Yeah. I'm not sure what age he was, but he was definitely between 24 and 32. I'll tell yeah, you that. that narrows it down. Bill Sterling. Uh-huh. And then again, Gary Mathias. And those five guys were a set of friends, and they met at the um, Yuba City uh, Vocational Rehabilitation Center for the what you would call today um, the Cognitively Impaired or Cognitively Challenged.
2: Yeah, because <clears throat> so, uh, three of these guys, mm-hmm. um, of course, this one article you have from 1978 doesn't use— uh, appropriate terms anymore, but no. three of these guys were uh, intellectually disabled um, or developmentally disabled. Not an exact, like, it's kind of hard to get an exact di- diagnosis from these 1978 terms. <laughs> really but uh, Madruga was undiagnosed, but according to his mom, uh, he was generally thought of, uh, as she said, as, quote, slow, uh, end quote. And then Matthias Uh, was the only one not diagnosed uh, with uh, a developmental disability, but he was under drug treatment for schizophrenia. Right. So all five of these guys had some sort of challenge going on in their life.
1: Right, exactly. So so there's a lot of details you can kind of glean because you're absolutely right. Like reading the, the really great Washington Post article, which is basically the comprehensive document on the case from 1978, um, You can kind of glean an idea, a picture of these guys. So they're Mm -hmm. just five friends, thick as thieves. Even within this this tight little group of friends, there's subgroups of even tighter friends like... um, Ted Weir and uh, Jackie Hewitt were particularly close, uh-huh. and Bill Sterling and Jack Madruga were particularly close. Um, they had like they were just these these five guys known as the boys, right? They all lived at home mm-hmm. with their parents. They were always going to live at home with their parents. That was just what what the the plan was, right? Um, like I think Ted uh, Ted Weir had a um, had a, uh, a job um as a janitor and then later on as a snack bar clerk. Yeah. Um Bella Basketball. Yeah, that was another one. And they actually all played together on the basketball team for the Vocational Rehab Center. Basically like their hangout, the place where they hung out. Right. They played basketball on that team. But um Jack Madruga, it's worth saying, had a driver's license, whereas three of the other ones didn't, although Gary Matthias did as well. So these guys, they just they were friends. They like had a um a a tight kinship together. They had very no, normal, reliable lives that were basically home-centric. And yeah. um, when they were out doing stuff, you could expect them home for dinner kind of thing. Like, you, that, it was just a given.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's super worth pointing out here early on. As they I uh, saw in more than one place, they said they referred to their lives as very predictable and scheduled. Right. Uh, which is why this interesting, uh, the events that occurred, Uh, on February 24th, 1978, were very, very unusual.
1: Right. So, on February 24th, 1978, the boys, that's what their families all call them, because apparently all their families were at least in touch, if not friendly, with one another.
2: Yeah, I think they kind of supported one another, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. as much as anyone did in
1: 1978. Sure. Uh, So, on this night, February 24th, there was a Friday night, 1978. Um, The the boys left their uh, homes around Maryville and Yuba City. In California, and they traveled, I think, about 50 miles north to Cal State Chico, which is now called Chico State University. And they went to go see their team, the Cal State LA team, beat up on Cal State Chico. And Cal State LA actually won 86 to 84, which would have pleased the boys tremendously. Sure. So they went to the game, that much is known. And then they left the game, that much is known too, because uh, around 10 o'clock when they left the game, they went to a convenience store called Bear's Market, and they bought some stuff.
2: Yeah, apparently uh, they were trying to kind of close up, and so the clerk was a little bit annoyed that they showed up. And these are the kind of details that aren't so important, but it just shows that, you know, they really did their investigating pretty thoroughly, uh, including, well, we'll we'll get to sort of the, the lead investigator in a minute. But, uh, yeah, they bought just a few things. They bought a hostess cherry pie, um a langendorf lemon pie, a snickers bar, a marathon bar, a couple of pepsis, and a quart and a half of milk uh which is to say, it's not like they were stocking up on food. they just got some
1: uh some some snacks right exactly for yeah. the for the drive back home fifty fifty miles about an hour, yeah, the thing is is <clears throat> they um. They would have been fully expected back home, not just because there was, you know, this was, it wasn't like any of them to spend the night away, right? Except yeah. Matthias. He he had friends and he would stay out with friends sometimes. But um, the other four, like, they slept in their bed at home every night. That's yeah. just what they did. So their families fully expected them to come back. Um, and another reason why they expected them to come back was because the next day, Saturday, they had a basketball game for their vocational rehab team, the Gateway Gators. And the uh, they apparently were all extraordinarily excited about this game. Yeah, which, again,
2: is just another point being made that there was, these guys had every intention on coming home, super excited about the game. Uh, I think uh, Matthias even was kind of driving his mom a little, batty saying, you know, don't let me oversleep. Mm -hmm. Got this big game. Apparently the guys had their clothes laid out, uh, and they were all super excited about this basketball game. Uh, And then they don't come home, and, you know, these parents and grandparents start waking up at various points in the middle of the night or in the morning and start getting in touch with one another, you know, all verifying, like, your kid's not there, your your kid's not there. And they start to freak out, and by 8 o'clock that evening, I believe uh, the mother of Madruga actually finally called the cops.
1: Yeah. And the cops um, were kind of, I don't have the impression that they were like, well, this is, I'm sure this is fine. I think they got involved pretty early on. Yeah. But things really picked up when uh, I think on a Tuesday, that was that was Saturday night that they finally called the cops. And on Tuesday, uh, Jack Madruga's car was discovered. And it was discovered in a very, Very unusual place, right? Yeah, what was this thing? An old uh, Mercury Montego. Yeah. A 69 Montego. A land yacht is what it was. exactly. And they found it. um, And this was, by the way, this was Jack Madruga's prized possession. Like, no one else drove the thing. He took pristine care of it. It was like his baby, his car was, right? Yeah. So to find it abandoned with the window, one of the windows rolled down, up a mountain road, which was... Um, I think seventy miles away from the basketball game, in a different direction away from their house, right? So the basketball game was north of their homes. This was east of southeast of the basketball game and up a mountain road. It was extremely bizarre and also I'm sure quite worrying when the the families were already worried. I think finding this car like this probably really set them into panic mode.
2: Well, yeah, and here's where, uh, and this article is very clear to say, from that point on, nothing made any kind of sense. So here's a few things about the car that definitely don't add up. Uh, you might think, uh, all right, there, the, you know, there was a snowstorm, so they drove up here and they got stuck. Uh, apparently that is not true. The car stopped at about the snow line. Mm-hmm. And they said they did confirm that the wheels had spun some, but the car wasn't stuck. And these five dudes could have pushed it free pretty easily, apparently. Right. Which so that's is, thing number one.
1: Thing number two is that it had a quarter tank of gas still, so they didn't run out of gas. Right. Then when the cops hotwired the car, the keys were gone. Uh, and when the cops hotwired the car, it started up immediately. There wasn't any engine trouble or anything like that.
2: Yeah. The last thing they found were all these maps of California. And um, so it's not like they had no way of knowing where they were. Uh, and then they found all the, you know, all the wrappers from the food items. Uh, the only thing, ironically, that wasn't fully eaten was the Marathon bar, um, living up to its reputation. <laughs> right. As the, I guess, the toughest candy bar to get through.
1: Yeah, that's that's how they build it, some weird cartoon cowboy.
2: Yeah, so, you know, that's the deal. The The underside of the car wasn't damaged which they say was pretty interesting because on this road, apparently there were a lot of deep, deep ruts. This thing kind of hangs low anyway. It has a low-hanging muffler, has these five dudes inside, these grown men. Uh, and there was no damage under the underside of this car, which means, you know, a couple of things if you kind of are surmising, which is that either the driver kind of knew where they were going mm-hmm. uh, and drove through the darkness with a a lot of precision, or they just maybe drove really slow?
1: Yeah, I think it was the latter, because I think Madruga was probably, would have been very unhappy that his car was on this road now. So just took it slow. And took it super slow. I saw somewhere that there wasn't even a large mud spot on it. It was, they had taken it that easy.
2: Yeah, and apparently Madruga uh, didn't like the cold. He didn't like camping, so he wouldn't have known that road. It's not like there's a lot else to do up there but that. Right. And evidently, uh, none of the boys were big into outdoorsy type stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a really good point, Chuck. So, like, the, none of them had any connection to that to that area, and certainly not to that mountain. One of them, I think— uh Sterling? Bill Sterling had been had gone camping with his family there eight years before.
2: Yeah, and he didn't even like—I think they went back again, and he was like, no, I don't want to go.
1: Right, so he didn't like the outdoors. He didn't like the cold. And then I think Ted uh, Ted Weir had gone deer hunting or something once with friends way west of the area. Um, but still, I mean, enough that you could, that was, it was a lead that the cops would have chased down. Um, but, but then too, he didn't enjoy himself and he didn't like the, the woods either. So there, there was no, let's go hang out in the woods kind of thing going on here. Just everything about the fact that they found this car and where they found it and the state they found it in was really bizarre and really worrying. Should we take a break? I think we should, man.
2: All right. You and I are going to go hang out in the woods (laughs) and we'll be back right after this.
0: Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
1: Hey, everybody. It's time to talk about Squarespace. And in particular, Squarespace's Fluid Engine, a next-generation website design system only from Squarespace. It makes it easier than ever for anybody to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. That's
2: because you start with a best-in-class website template. Then you customize every design detail with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. You can stretch your imagination online with Fluid Engine, built in and ready to go on any new Squarespace site.
1: Yep, you can use your site to easily sell custom merch through your online store. You can upload, organize, and access all your content from one place with your asset library. And those amazing website templates are all flexible, with designs for every category and use case. That's right,
2: so just go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And When you're ready to launch, use the offer code STUFF to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
1: So I've never swept the woods before. That was really interesting. <laughs> I know, right? It's not an awesome <laughs> spick and span out here. So, um, so they find the car, and when they find the car, Chuck, I think it was the next night after they had gone missing. A storm blew into the area, yeah, and, and it dumped like almost a foot of snow on the mountain. This is February in the mountains in California. Um, I would guess the Sierras is what it sounds like, right? So yeah, Chico's in, the, Chico's in the Sierra Nevadas. I think it's north of uh, Sacramento. So um, it would be very, very cold, and the snow would be pretty tough to get through. Um, so, th- but they still tried. They got guys on horseback. They got helicopters out. They looked for them, but they found nothing. They found not one bit of of um, and not a single trace of these guys. After just the car, and that was it.
2: Yeah, the snow certainly didn't help anything. Right. Uh, because it would not be until June, on June 4th, after this thing, you know, the mountain thaws out somewhat, when these uh, Sunday, you know, motorcycle bikers, they'll go ride around the mountains, they went into a an old uh, Forest Service trailer camp at the end of a road and said, do you smell something that smells like perhaps a dead body? And sadly, it was uh, Ted Weir, and this is where things get even stranger.
1: Yeah. So the the I think the trailer caught their attention, but what caught their attention even further was that a window had been broken to get mm-hmm. into the trailer. And then, yeah, like you said, what really caught their attention was the smell and the sight of of Ted Weir's decomposing body. But what got what made it very very weird is one, he's wrapped in sheets, mm-hmm. tucked under his head in a way that like he couldn't have possibly tucked himself. So somebody had tucked him in like that. And he, Ted Weir had been a portly fellow. Um, Cynthia Gorney, who wrote the Washington Post article on this this case in 1978, calls him um, beer belly handsome, which I've never heard those words put together in my entire life. Oh, I think that's what I am. Sure, sure. (laughs) I call you Beer-belly foxy. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, um, but he was beer-belly handsome. He was, a th- he was a thick guy. He was like 5'10", 200 pounds. He had a few extra pounds on him, right? When they found him, though, he weighed about 120, 100 to 120 pounds, which means that between the time that they went missing and the time that he died, he'd lost anywhere between 80 and 100 pounds.
2: Yeah. Uh, a couple of more interesting tidbits. He— uh, his leather shoes were gone and missing completely. Um, on the little nightstand by his bed was his his own ring, because uh, it had his name engraved on it. Ted, his gold, yeah, Ted, his gold necklace, uh, his wallet with money, uh, and then weirdly, a watch that was not his. It was a a gold Waltham watch that had a, a missing crystal, uh, and all of the family said that this no none of our kids had this watch. Right. So that's uh, one interesting tidbit. And the other is that he had a big, full beard that indicated that he lived in that cabin for anywhere from 8 to 13 weeks.
1: Right. And what's really, really unnerving about the 13-week one, the 13-week number, is that if he survived 13 weeks, that means that he would have died just days before he, his body was found. Is that Right. Yes. Did you did you do the math? <laughs> I did the math because think about it. So they disappeared on February twenty fourth, and he was found June fourth. So you've got uh, yeah. March, May, April, and early May. June. Yep. Wow. I really, really hope I call on the saints that that not to have been the case.
2: Like that he perhaps died a couple of days before.
1: Yeah, that that he, he would have expired like, like weeks before, and that there yeah. was just no chance for him. Like if he was destined and doomed to die, I really hope it wasn't a couple of days before they found his body after starving for 13 weeks.
2: Yeah, and to cap it off, I don't think we, we've we mentioned yet, this cabin was almost 20 miles from their car. Oh, yeah. So in the middle of the night, uh. And at this point, this is this is all we know is about Ted in our story. He walked or ran uh, almost twenty miles in four to six foot snowdrifts to go to this trailer where he spent the next two to three months slowly dying.
1: Yeah. So okay. <clears throat> that's pretty weird in and of itself. And they they found that his feet were terribly frostbitten, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why his shoes were off. But again, his shoes were missing. Um, what gets even weirder, and this is just where the case truly turns bizarre, is one, oh, of yeah. the, one of the Yuba County Sheriff's deputies or undersheriff called it bizarre as hell. Is like the quote of this story. Um this this tr- the trailer the cabin was actually like a forest service trailer and it was an emergency trailer from what i understand and it was fully stocked with a year's worth of food that would have kept all five of those boys alive yeah for a year it was built to keep you alive yes exactly and they found it but they didn't put it to use now that's not to say that they didn't find the food there was there were 12 rations like um, sea rations like army meals Mm -hmm. opened and eaten but that was it the other stuff wasn't touched there was a whole locker of other dehydrated food and like fruit cups and stuff that hadn't been touched at all okay and bear in mind this is all right here while ted ted weir is starving to death
2: yeah so all this food is there Uh, They found out or the investigators determined that there had not been a fire built, even though there were paperback novels, there was wood furniture, there were matches, like everything was there to build a fire. And not only that, but there was a propane tank that all they had to do, uh, it was in another shed outside, all they had to do was open this
1: thing on and they would have actually had gas heat. Yes, heat right they didn't they also didn't even um cover up the broken window that they they used to get into the trailer. It's just weird, just bizarre decision after bizarre decision, right yeah, so there's one other thing in the trailer that that is um pretty interesting. they find Gary matthias's tennis shoes mm-hmm. so Gary matthias's tennis shoes are there, and um ted Weir's shoes leather shoes are missing, yeah. Uh, and what they think possibly is that uh, Gary Mathias was in the trailer with Ted. Ted had terrible frostbite. Ted would have had bigger feet than Gary. Gary probably had frostbite too, so he used Ted's shoes to put them on and go back out into the wilderness.
2: Yeah, I mean, they pretty much determined that probably all five of those guys were, were in here
1: at one point. Okay, so I have to say that's that's, I don't think that's true. Oh, really? Because that's what I saw. So I th- So what I saw was that they—so, okay, we should probably tell everybody that the, we should continue on, Chuck. But the—like, uh, uh, I think a day after they found Ted Weir, they started looking around the area, and they started finding the other boy's remains. Yeah,
2: and, you know, this is thanks to what I said would be sort of the lead investigator, uh, Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers, who actually had gone to high school with Weir— Uh, Didn't know him that well, but he was really consumed by this case Mm -hmm. um, and seemed sort of obsessed with trying to solve it to the point where he was chasing down leads from psychics at one point.
1: Yeah, apparently he met with a psychic who— told him that the boys were in Oroville or had been murdered in a red house, either brick or stained, Mm -hmm. in Oroville with the house number either 4723 or 4753. And Lance Ayers was so consumed with this that he actually drove every street of Oroville over a two-day period trying to find that house based on the tip of a psychic. That's how obsessed he became with this case.
2: Yeah, so... We've put a pin in our were-they-all-in-the-cabin debate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're coming back to that, right? Right. All right. So now we pick up a story of a man named Joseph Shones, and this is where things get even more odd. So this guy was 55 years old. He uh, got in touch with the cops because, you know, some strange things that had happened that night of the disappearance. He was going to go camping with his family. Um, on, you know, up that road, and so he decided to take his little Volkswagen Beetle um, around 5.30 that evening just to check out the snow line, (laughs) see if it was passable, and if it was going to be safe to take his family camping that weekend.
1: He found out it was not.
2: Yeah, he got his his car stuck uh, right right above the snow line, and this was to be about 50 yards further than where that mercury would eventually be found.
1: Right. So he has... um, he gets out to push a push his beetle, right, and has a heart attack he's he's fifty five and this is nineteen seventy eight which means he he lived on nothing but scotch and steak. so you can imagine <laughs> that that was the outcome, right? when you yeah. have to push your volkswagen beetle and um he, he's like in a bad spot right there. He's sure. alone in the wilderness, at the snow line of a mountain eight miles away from help that the place that he had stopped to actually get a drink probably of scotch, on the way up the mountain to check out the snow line, had been eight miles back in the other direction. So he very wisely, like, leaves his car running with the heater on and just lays there and tries to collect himself and gather himself. Yeah, and this if, is
2: a, a mild heart attack, we should point out.
1: But enough that if you are sure. Joseph
2: Shons, you are probably freaking out. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to... Uh... Diminish, like, his danger level, but it wasn't like uh, he was, like, laying there near death. Like, he would eventually hike eight miles out
1: right after right.
2: this heart attack.
1: Yes. So he—but but while he was laying there trying to, like, get, gather his strength again— Sure. So this happened about 5.30, and he said a couple hours after that, some—a um, a car, at least one, but probably two cars, and one of them would have been a pickup truck— came up and had their lights on, and he saw the silhouettes of some men and a woman with a baby. And he said he called out to them, and they uh, ignored it and turned off the lights, and he got back in his car. And he said he laid there for another few hours before he heard some whistling sounds and some flashlight beams uh, a little further down the mountain, probably about 50 yards uh, and that would have been a couple hours, probably about five or six hours after his um, his heart attack, and they think that the second group, at least, uh, was the the five boys uh, le- with Gary and Mathias.
2: Yeah, and I, well, I think at this point they were right outside his car window.
1: Yeah. So again, he gets out, calls for help, and the the whistling sounds stop and the flashlights get turned off. And so he goes back in his car and lays back down. And he's like, two two groups of people have come up this mountain. I'm having a heart attack here. And somehow calling for help has chased both of of them off, both groups off.
2: Yeah, so that that Volkswagen Beetle, I I can tell you from experience, had like an eight-gallon gas tank. Mm -hmm. So it eventually runs out of gas. Um, It also, now that I think about it, doesn't have a very efficient heating system like – my first beetle didn't even have a fan. We just called it the, the ankle burner. Like, if you, t- <laughs> you, when you turned on the heat, it literally just opened vents in the floorboard to, mm-hmm. that like came straight off the engine.
1: Wow, that's, that's sharp design.
2: So you wouldn't even like, you had to be moving for there to be actually hot air running through it. Man. But I do know that uh, I had a, another beetle that had, uh, that did have a little fan. So let's just presume that Shone's had the fan. I'm
1: not going to. I'm going to presume the opposite. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to presume that this was a hellish experience for him in every way. All right. So eventually the car runs out of gas. Uh,
2: It's still dark, and he manages, after this heart attack, like I said earlier, to walk eight miles to a lodge called the Mountain House. Is that where he had gotten the drink? Yeah. All right. So he comes back, and they're like, (laughs) Shones. And he's like, don't Shones me. You have no idea what I've been through. Uh, It turns out it's pretty serious, and on the way out, he passes this Montego uh, sitting empty in the middle of the road.
1: About 50 yards further down the mountain behind his car where he stopped at the snow line. That's right. So Schoens doesn't think much of this. He just is like, okay, well, there's a car in the middle of the road. The snow line's here. I'm not the only one who got stuck last night. Those guys are jerks for not coming to my aid when I shouted for help. And he, he doesn't think much of it until all of a sudden on the news, he starts seeing these reports of these five guys who went missing the same night that he had his heart attack on the same road in the same mountain, and he he came forward. And the cops figured out, like, that Joseph Shones was probably the last person to see those five guys alive.
2: Uh, well, yeah, they're silhouettes at least. Yeah. Uh, should we take a break?
1: I think so, man.
2: All right. We're going to take a break and get to some more uh, sad discoveries right after this. Hey, Sarah. I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG. You watched it? Yeah. It was edited so well.
1: Okay, we're back, Chuck. We are. You promised more sad discoveries. Lay it on them. All right.
2: So, the next day after Weir's body had been found, you know, the search is really on at this point. Uh, they found a few things. They found the remains of uh, Sterling and Madruga. Mm-hmm. They're on different sides of the road, uh, that same road that led to the trailer, but about 11 and a half miles from the car. Right. So, presumably, another, what, nine miles from the trailer?
1: Yes, which is why I think that they never made it to the trailer.
2: Put a pin in that. (laughs) Okay, all
1: right. All right.
2: Uh, Madruga had very uh, gruesomely been partially eaten by animals, of course, up there in the mountains.
1: Probably after he had died, though.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think it sounds like all of this was they succumbed to nature, and Mm -hmm. then the animals kind of took it from there. Right. Uh, So they dragged his body to a stream. Uh, he was laying there face up, uh, they said, with his hand curled around his watch. Uh, and then Sterling was in the woods, and uh, very gruesomely, they said that his remains were, or his bones, I guess, were scattered over about 50 feet.
1: Yes. And then I think a day or so after that, there was another search party that was launched, and Jackie Hewitt's father insisted on being a part of it. Mm-hmm. And Jackie Hewitt was still missing, and very sadly, his dad was the one who discovered his remains. He found... um. His son's, I think, spine is is what he came upon. Yeah, the same road, a lot closer to the trailer, though. But he, right, like just a quarter mile or something, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's about right. Something very, very close to it. And they also found um, his his clothes. They knew it was him because he his Levi's and his shirt were also found nearby. And so were, um, he was wearing very stylish platform shoes called Get There's. Which I had to look up, and they were actually pretty fresh.
2: Yeah, not not the kind of shoes that you want to be hiking around the snowy woods in.
1: No, definitely not. I mean, again, platform shoes—they're like, um, you know that that uh, squ- that rubbery soled thing that like you find on like Clark's, like Clark Wallabies, like yeah. the thick rubbery sole. I think it's called crepe sole. They were like those, but platform shoes and and like a ripply bottom. Yeah, pro- look, pro- <laughs> look at these things. Yeah, they're probably the worst. The worst hiking shoes you could ever imagine. I don't know what these would be good for, actually. Catching ladies, probably. All right, I guess. I mean, they're pretty. They're pretty cool. That that wavy sole though looks so strange. Well, I looked that up. It's it's to keep your center of balance when you're way up there.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes more sense then.
1: Yeah, there were there was a lot of thought put into those shoes.
2: Uh, and then finally, uh, the next day, uh, there was a skull discovered. Uh, about 100 yards downhill, and that was the the final remains from uh, Jackie Hewitt.
1: Yeah. So they found everybody, everybody that is except for Gary Mathias. He was still missing. Yeah. And he's, he still is, actually. If you go on the Yuba County Sheriff's website, on their missing persons page, he's still listed there. Yeah, his shoes were inside
2: again in that trailer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. Which you know that they can't say anything for sure though, but it suggests that he was in there at one point, and they surmise that he may have, like you said, taken them off to wear the leather shoes. I guess presumably because they were warmer,
1: uh, or his feet were frostbitten and had swollen, so ah. he needed the bigger shoes gotcha. to um to strike out back outside. Like he was, he was like, I can't go out there barefoot, and I can't get my tennis shoes on any longer.
2: Yeah, and so the deal with Matthias, like we said, he was under treatment for schizophrenia. Um he was in the army uh in Germany and apparently um had occasions post-war where he had become violent. Uh he was charged with assault a couple of times, but um all accounts say that for the at least the last 2 years he had really been on his meds. Mm-hmm. He had been working in his stepdad's business. He was uh they called him one of the our sterling success cases,
1: yeah, his doctor did,
2: yeah, and they were really you know he was really coming around and hadn't had any uh what is his dad he said he called them haywire episodes, yeah, hadn't had one of those in in a in a couple of years, and uh the stepfather said that he had he had been taking his meds the week he disappeared.
1: Right, and his stepfather would know because his stepfather owned a gardening business and um, Gary Mathias had been working with him side-by-side side for a couple of years by that time. Yeah. So he uh, he also didn't seem like one to really mince words or BS. Right. So I, I take him for his word that his his son was fully medicated and his schizophrenia was under control, it sounds like. Yeah. So um, the problem is, is he hadn't taken his pills with him. So if he did survive... Um, he he had he had gone without him. He left him at home, and the reason why he left him at home is because he fully expected to have been yeah. back home a couple hours after he left for the basketball game. Yeah, now more evidence that like it's just really bizarre that they went anywhere but home, and that raised a lot of questions for the families um, back in the day. Uh, the the I think Madruga's mom, Mabel was very vocal about her belief that um somebody had either tricked or threatened her, her son and the other boys into going up that mountain or um somebody else was was responsible for yeah. for this series of decisions.
2: Yeah, so they they learned a few things afterward that are sort of clues but n- never ended up solving anything. Um one is that a, a snowcat, a Forest Service snowcat, had been up that road, uh, I think, what, the just the day before?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so.
2: And packed in a, a path of snow, so it was walkable. So they, you know, it led up to that trailer, and they f- surmised that the boys may have, this might have been the only walkable path forward. Mm-hmm. Right. So they might have followed that path to the trailer. Uh, they hired a water witcher at one point. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in Paradise, California, and he said that he he fixed his little – is it divining or divining? Divining. Divining rod to pick up human minerals and traces of humans. Mm -hmm. That led them to another cabin where they found uh, a disposable lighter, uh, and this was about three-quarters of a mile from the the trailer where they found uh, the body. And all the parents said, no, like they didn't have a lighter like this. The guys didn't carry a lighter.
1: Right. So there were a lot of dead ends like that. And, like, for example, that watch that had been found with Ted Weir, that it was missing its crystal, and all the family said that was in any of our boys' watch. Right. I mean, it could be totally meaningless. It could have been a forest ranger who had left the watch behind because it had broken or something like that. But that's most of the evidence in this case are just those, just little dead ends.
2: Yeah, that uh, Gary Mathias apparently knew some people and they're really just sort of reaching at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, new people in Forbestown, which is about halfway between Chico and Yuba City. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently the turn is easy to miss. And there was some speculation, like maybe he was taking his buddies to go see these people he knew, got lost. But apparently those friends were like, we hadn't seen him in years. And it would be really like unlikely that he just would have randomly come to visit.
1: Yeah, I could also see the other boys not wanting to go along with that, too, because they had that basketball game in the morning that they all wanted to be um, fresh as a daisy for you too. Yeah. And, and, like, Gary Mathias had been badgering his mom, I think, like you said, to make sure he didn't oversleep the next morning because he was excited about that basketball game, too. Yeah. So the thing is, though, Chuck, is even if—let's say that is the case. Let's say that they all got a wild hair and they decided to go see Gary Mathias's friend. And they started up this mountain because they got lost. They missed the turnoff and ended up on a mountain road at the snow line. Thought the car was stuck. What—why? Why why would all of them, all of them collectively and individually say, well, let's go up— Rather than yeah. back down. Let's go up into the snow. Supposedly the snow drifts were six, eight feet. Um, Even if of- it
2: was packed down with a snow cat, it doesn't make sense to go forward. No. Unless they thought, well, the last side of civilization behind us was too far. Right. Maybe there's something up here.
1: Which is a thing. That's It's, a, it's a, an economic theory called sunk cost, where yeah. you're so invested in something, you're so far along that right. you don't want to just stop and turn back or, or quit. So it's possible that that, was, that aided in their decision-making. But again, okay, so then let's say that they're like, okay, this snowcat, track is going to lead us to safety or something. When they get to the trailer, like why not eat the food? Why not make a fire? I can I can even see missing the propane tank, just not being, you know, um, just with it enough from the harrowing experience sure. that you could just totally miss the propane tank and not even think that your trailer is going to have that kind of thing. But the food that you've already started to eat, that you already show you have a can opener and know how to use it, like how do you just starve to death after that? Well, I mean, the food, the other other food was in
2: a locker they never opened apparently, but like if you're there, especially for two to three months,
1: mm-hmm.
2: like you're turning over everything. You're lighting a fire with whatever you can get your hands on. There's plenty of stuff to make a fire. Yeah. Uh, what's up with the the supposed woman and the baby? That could be chalked up maybe pretty easily to uh, what was his name? Snopes shoots Shones Shones Snopes. That'd be S- Snoop Dogg. <laughs> That could be chalked up to him in the state of a heart attack in the middle of the night, just sort of seeing things.
1: Could have been, or it could have just been an entirely different party of people who sure. had nothing to do with it, or everything to do with it. But it I, it could have they could have been there too. I mean, it was you know it was a mountain. Some people lived on it. Some people apparently like camped there, which is what Shones was scouting for. You know,
2: how did Matthias never get found at all?
1: I don't know. I saw in I think a. Uh, I think at the end of the WAPO article, um, Cynthia Gorney, the, the journalist, says that um, probably, you know, he he'd laid there on the snow somewhere that they just didn't find or overlooked, or he got buried in the snow, and then when the thaw came, he sunk down to the ground and was covered over by some, some mountain vines.
2: I guess so, but it seems like after all these years, a bone or a, one of those leather shoes or something— yeah would have been found.
1: Yeah, you'd think both of those would still be intact.
2: Yeah, I mean, what I did not see was any sort of speculation that he had had any nefarious like actions. No. Um, But we did put a pin in something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember what it was.
2: I saw a couple of theories that they they speculate that all of these guys went to the cabin at one point and... Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, uh, Weir wasn't doing so well, so they all set out independently Hmm. to go look for help, and each died, or maybe in pairs, maybe, uh, since the two guys were kind of found together. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's all just speculation. You saw that they don't think they were all there?
1: Yeah. uh, What I saw was that um, Jackie Hewitt and um, Bill Sterling and um, Jack Madruga hadn't, had never made it to the to the trailer. That so they, they were, would have split up on no, the way up. No, no, that they were that they had, um, or, or died during that twenty mile hike. Yes. Oh, interesting. And then Ted and Gary had ca- continued on up t- and made the made it to the trailer. And then what I think happened after that was Gary nursed Ted. Gary had been in the army, and the can opener that was there was actually a very simple thing called a P-38, Yeah, but you kind of had to have been in the Army to to know how to use it, and Ted wouldn't have been, and Gary would have been. So I think Gary may have stayed, probably fed both of them, and then, like you said, seeing Ted was not doing so well, set out again with Ted's shoes and and died um, going off to get help somehow. That's what I think happened. Yeah, I would think they'd
2: get split up on the way up, though. Like, I, I just don't even know. Like, these guys would have died that quickly on on the way on this twenty mile hike. I mean, six to eight foot snowdrifts—that's cold. Yeah, know? but they're also on this snow-packed trail, supposedly.
1: Sure, but they also have like they're dressed for mild weather. Like, they didn't have jackets, yeah. sweaters. Their shoes were like 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 Converse kind of things. Aside from the the um platform shoes that like i just I, I, it's entirely possible that a 20 mile hike up a mountain they succumb to the weather
2: yeah and you also like it, it was hard to determine what level of uh, intellectual uh, impairment these boys mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. so i don't know how much that plays into it if at all mm-hmm. like when they get to this cabin like did um matthias's because, you know, he didn't have his meds after that. Did he start kind of breaking down with, with some uh, episodes of schizophrenia mm. and leave? Yeah. Did the other guy not fully understand? I mean, at that point, he's exhausted and maybe hurt or and scared. Was he not even able to figure out maybe to light a fire?
1: Light a fire or how to use that can opener. Or maybe he felt he couldn't get out of bed because of his feet. Yeah. And he he was just stuck there after Gary, struck out to go get help. That there was nothing he could do, and the poor guy starved to death. Yeah, but the what were is, they
2: doing up there to begin with? That's the, the basic root of this whole thing.
1: Yeah, but that's that's why they call this the uh, American love Pass. You right. Know, we got to do an episode on that one too. But because there's so there's like a mystery within a mystery within a mystery. There's so many mi- like other mysteries. Yeah, yeah, that that just kind of um crescendo from the, the first mystery which is what were they doing there? It's yeah. True.
2: Well, like and like you said, some of the parents firmly believe like they witnessed something at this basketball game and were were then chased up this mountain. Yeah. Like I don't even know what that means. Like like they witnessed a crime and I, they came uh, after him or something.
1: That's what Ted Weir's sister in law always believed. Hmm. And speaking of Ted Weir, you got anything else on this?
2: No, except to only say if that was the case, then why was the car seemingly driven very slowly and carefully up this road if they were being chased?
1: Oh, okay. So you make a good point. And I think I saw that elsewhere, too, that, that like, that virtually proves that they weren't chased. Yeah. If anything, it shows that they, um, that, that, say, something happened to them and somebody ditched their car who who knew the area. I think more likely um, Jack Madrugo just would have driven it extraordinarily slowly because this is his his baby car. Yeah, it's all just very sad. I think it's just one of those...
2: It's probably like Occam's Razor. It's probably the most simple explanation is, you know, maybe they just went on a little joyride, got a little lost, Mm -hmm. got turned around in the woods and succumbed to nature.
1: Yeah. So I find this... I said at the beginning that this is just a very sad story to me. Yeah. And one of the things that got me was in that Washington Post article. It's called Five Boys Who Never Come Back by Cynthia Gourney. It's from 1978. You can find it online. But um, they, the, she describes Ted Weir as, are you ready for this? That Ted got a good chuckle out of phoning Bill Sterling and reading from newspaper items or oddball names from the telephone book. Like, that's what he was into. That's yeah. what made him happy. And I'm sure Bill Sterling thought it was hilarious, too. But, like, they were just this group of friends. And can't yeah. you just imagine, Sweet like, kids. Ted Weir, like, going through the phone book looking yeah. for silly names and going and picking up the phone and calling his friend Bill Sterling and saying, Bill, get a load of this one. Yeah. And Bill's just laughing on the other end of the line. And, like, they they, they just had, like, this such a pure... Life, like almost a, like an enviable life in a lot of ways, and that they they died so horribly is just just bitterly sad to me. Yeah,
2: they, I mean they weren't troublemakers, and even um, even the one who had had gotten uh, convicted of assault a couple of times, Gary. Yeah, Gary. It seems like all signs point to the his mental illness is playing a big factor in that, which he had gotten in check.
1: Right, exactly. All very sad. It is very sad. Well, if you have any uh, theories on the, what'd you call them, the Yuba City 6, 5? Yuba County or Yuba City 5? Or... Yuba City 5. Yeah. Um, we want to hear them. You can find all of our social media connections on our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com. And if you like, you can also send us an email. Just shoot it off to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Wait, we haven't done listener mail, have we? No. <laughs> you were just going <laughs> to let me keep going, weren't you? Well, you know. All right. Well, hold on, You're everybody. Group. Hold on. Don't stop yet. <laughs> Don't stop yet. Uh, since I said some stuff I'm not supposed to say, it's time for listener mail. Yes. And
2: speaking of which, this listener mail is rated rated R.
1: Okay. That's
2: all I'll say. Does it use uh, the S word? No, but it, it doesn't use curse words. It's just um, talks very frankly about sex. And it's good PSA though, so we oh I, think I we know this,
1: say this stuff. Yep, for sure.
2: Uh, and this is from Emily, not my wife. Uh, hey guys, listen to the select episode on condoms the other day. Thanks for all the great info. Uh, appreciate you covering topics, uh, maybe slightly controversial or divisive, and do so with such grace. I wanted to throw a little extra PSA in there though, for your listeners. Most people are aware that you can and should use condoms to prevent pregnancy and or STIs when a penis is involved. But there's far less awareness about protection when you've only got vaginas in the mix. Although you certainly can't get pregnant, it is possible to spread or contract an STI from sex between two women or other vagina-having people. But you can greatly reduce your risk of this by using a dental dam. It's a sheet of latex placed over the vulva or anus for oral sex. That's all, uh, and that's all there really is to it. If you don't have one on hand, you can safely DIY one. By unrolling a regular condom, cutting off the clothes end, and bam, it's a dental dam. Hmm. In the case of digital sex, uh, not as in computers as in fingers, uh, latex gloves are are perfect for the job. Of course, uh, these can also be used by absolutely anyone. There's a lot more awareness of protection for heterosexual and male homosexual couples and not uh, a lot for queer women. Uh, Well, that's my Stuff You Should Know, and now you know it. Thanks for consistently great work and outstanding effort in educating and entertaining us every week. And happy Pride Month, uh, and she wrote back, I just realized I gave an incomplete DIY instruction.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You would cut off the closed end of the condom uh, and the ring on the open end, then cut down the middle, mm-hmm. and now it's a flat sheet. Bam. So that is from Emily. Thanks a lot, Emily. Happy
1: Pride Month indeed. Good info. Uh, yeah. It was good info. And if you out there want to send us good info, I already said it. I said it once and I'll say it again. You can find all our social stuff on stuffyoushouldknow.com. And you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.